Welcome to the A Day at DPL podcast. DPL's David Lau and founder of Tiburon Chiprome share insights on industry trends, product innovation, and thoughts on how advisors can deliver pricing models based on client needs. Hello, this is David Lau, and I'm welcoming Chip Rome uh, to the podcast today. Uh, Chip is the founder and managing partner of Tiburon Strategic Advisors and the Tiburon CEO Summits. And Chip is a leading strategic advisor to CEOs and other senior executives and boards of directors in the wealth investment management and wealth tech markets. And I think the kind of crowning achievement of his career to date is that he recently joined the DPL board. <laughs> so we're super, super happy to, to welcome Chip uh, to the board and, and the team and looking forward to the conversation today. So hello, Chip. Uh, hello, David. And I agree with the crowning achievement. Fine comment. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, you're about as connected into financial services as you know anybody anybody I know, and you've been doing it for a long time. You kind of came up in in the industry as a consultant, you know, spent a little time at you know at Schwab, and then formed you know Tiburon. If you want to you know give kind of the thirty thousand foot view of your of your career and and how you got to where you are, that'd be that'd be terrific. Yep, sure. 30,000 foot view would be I grew up in Detroit. I went to college and the, the business school MBA from University of Michigan, became a McKinsey consultant out of business school, which means big international consulting firm. I happened to get placed into financial services. And so I did all financial services projects, lived in New York and London and Sydney, Australia and places like that. And then I joined Schwab. Well, actually, two McKinsey guys had gone to Schwab ahead of me. The concept was this was the booming financial services firm and you wanted to be part of it. And so I did the same. Uh, worked out great. I spent just three years there, but it was a terrific three years. And then 20 something years ago, I founded Tiburon and Tiburon's kind of grown up around me and Tiburon now has hundreds of members and we do weekly research calls and semi-annual Tiburon CEO summits and all that. I sit on six or eight boards of companies and, you know, that's kind of my world. My world's financial services plus the wine industry too, but we'll just talk about financial services today. Oh, I don't know. I think people would probably tune in more if we were talking about the wine industry. Financial services. So, you know, RIAs, obviously huge, hot area, financial services, growing area. Everybody loves the fee-based model, the wrapped account, you know, manage money, recurring revenue model these days. And what are you know some of the macro trends you see going on in the RIA market? And and, and there's some there's some you know really obvious ones and maybe some that are aren't quite so obvious. Yep, sure. So I think the I think of the RIA industry as part of the broader wealth management industry. Uh, it is the fastest growing part of the wealth management industry. But, you know, other parts would be, you know, the wirehouses also evolved their model to managed accounts and in, insurance agents have also got into managed accounts. So as you said, everyone loves the managed account concept, right? So wherever you're coming from, you're heading towards managed accounts these days, right? So in the broader wealth management industry, I think the trends are, you know, some things that are changing about consumers. Gen X generation is saving and investing most of the money today. Uh, baby boomers are heading into retirement and are going to liquidate some of their monies. Things like minorities and women emerging as uh, significant investor segments right now. So a lot changing in consumer land. You got a lot changing in the industry's land. So we kind of, as we said, we take managed accounts for given today, but now then enter robo advisors, enter alternative investments, enter cryptocurrencies, 
and, and advisors are getting very focused on being broader wealth managers or holistic financial planners. So that's a big industry shift there. And then lastly, at the advisor level, you're seeing these ginormous firms grow up. So they're focused on, in the RA space, they're focused on uh, lead generation, they're focused on virtual delivery, they're focused on succession planning, things like that. So at the consumer level, the customer level, at the industry macro trends level, and at the advisor practice level, there's a lot changing right now. One of those obvious trends is that the consolidation, you know, a lot of RAs pay a lot of attention to that because you've got these mega firms forming. Every day you're seeing transactions happening. You know, somebody's gobbling somebody else up. And for the smaller firms, they start wondering, what does this mean for me in the future? And is the small firm going to, you know, going to go away? Is it all going to get rolled up into big mega national firms that look like wirehouses? What, what do you think is going to happen? And with firm size throughout the industry? So, first of all, I think by way of numbers, last year there were just under 800 transactions in the wealth management industry. So, there's also, there's even more than that, by the way, in the insurance agent world and in the uh, TPA world and the, you know, real estate agent world. Lots of other industries are rolling up around us, but just narrowly in the wealth industry, just under 800 transactions. So, to your point, if it's in the news every day, there's about 200 business days a year. It's in the news four times a day, to be clear. So there's about four transactions per business day now, right? So the big are certainly getting bigger. So whether you focus on Cap Trust or Edelman or uh, Mariner or Mercer or Creative Planning or Wealth Enhancement Group, or I'm sure I forgot a bunch of important, all worth, there's so many of them, right? Probably two dozen, maybe 30 private equity-backed RIA aggregators right now about 30 of them, you know, with, uh, with private equity money. So they're going to keep buying. No doubt they're going to keep buying. You know, the number of transactions, while it's a lot, is still not that many for the size of the industry. So you just you do the math of there's 30,000 RIAs out there. If an average RIA has a career of 15, 20, 25 years or whatever, you should be seeing some portion of them retire every year. We're still low on that scale. We're not high on that scale. So yeah, I think you'll see more transactions in the future, not fewer, right? So, so up to about 800 transactions per year. I expect that number to go up. I expect the big firms to get much, much bigger. Um, Tibron um, is, is out there fairly vocally with a prediction that within five years, you'll see an RIA firm that has a trillion dollars of assets, right? So, so Edelman would claim they have, Edelman Financial Engines would claim they have about 300 billion. Cap Trust has, you could claim even more, has part of that's a retirement plan business. So it's, you know, it's a little different math or whatever. Uh, but these are hundreds of billions of dollar firms now, not tens or ones of billions, but hundreds of billions of dollars firms. So some of them will be up in a trillion dollar zone in five years. On the flip side, to answer your other question, I don't think that means little advisors are gone. I, I, I don't think you have to join a big firm. I don't, I don't, I just think that's kind of false logic when people say, well, because the big are going to get so big, you have to be big. Well, no, <laughs> there's no evidence for that fact. That's just a made up comment, you know? Um, so because technology is so good in the industry, it's easy to go, you know, you could use AssetMark or SEI or Orion or InvestNet or whatever and, and run a very efficient small practice and make decent money in most parts of the country. It would seem to me that they that the small firm probably evolves to starting to outsource more of that asset management. 
because that's kind of a scale business, managing assets. And, you know, small firms might start migrating more to that and, you know, focusing more on that being in front of the client and doing business development and managing, being a financial quarterback or something more akin to that than a real asset manager going forward. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you've seen you've seen a generational shift from the original RIAs back in like the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of them were stock and bond pickers. You know, they 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 were investment counselors was their lingo for themselves, right? You know, they they believed they were like a, a, a private bank trust department. They were managing you a portfolio of stocks and bonds from their David Lau and Chip Rome RIA business, right? And that's how a lot of them started. Today, almost every incremental RIA is picking ETFs and, you know, wrapping them in some way. So then your outsource comment is is really one of twofold. You're going to outsource. The question is, are you only outsourcing your technology or are you also outsourcing your investment management process? But very few RIAs exist today that don't use Black Diamond or Orion or InvestNet or Tamarack or something. So the idea of doing that stuff yourself doesn't much exist anymore. And then the question is, do you still believe you're the great stock picker? Like, there's still a lot of advisors out there that buy Morningstar, Principia Pro, and go through it, and they pick the right mutual funds and ETFs and all. They really they pride themselves on that. That's fine. There's others that have moved beyond that because you've also seen the models uh, emerge over the last five or seven years. So BlackRock or whoever will just give you their darn models because guess what? Their models filled with BlackRock funds, and so therefore it's a good deal for them, right? So lo and behold, I think the model business will push more of these advisors to outsourcing. So effectively, they will mostly all outsource. Having been in the RA industry for a while now myself, I mean, the other thing I notice, you know, kind of changing is, you know, some years ago, a lot of the RAs were like real entrepreneurs, kind of cowboys going independent. That, that wasn't such a common thing. And, and the breed of, you know, RIAs from, you know, 15 years ago, they were uh, characters, many of them. And, and now it's become such a mainstream thing that, you know, so many financial advisors are just opting for that from the get-go. And I think it's, you know, becoming a little less filled with characters than back in the old days. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think you have two other things going on that that add to your trend. One is that young people these days often work at an RIA firm. They don't start an RIA firm. They go to work there. Now, they may stay there forever and become a partner, and or they may spin themselves out of an RIA and go start their own RIA. So a lot of them are growing up in an entirely different generation now. They, they didn't grow up at Merrill Lynch or at some, you know, wirehouse or brokerage firm or insurance company. They actually grew up at an RIA and then are stepping out of the RIA. And I think that's super interesting to watch, you know, because those people are doing business the right way right from the beginning. Uh, and it's just a choice of do they want to be the entrepreneur and take the financial risk or do they want to work at an existing firm? Yeah. And there's a real career path, you know, for young people within, you know, an RIA from being a planner and customer facing to managing investments. There's definitely a career path for young people, which you know, may not have existed not so long ago. But as these businesses start to get bigger and scale, there's upward mobility there for the taking at the firm. I'm on the board of Edelman Financial Engines. I think they're a great example. I mean, they have north of a thousand employees, right? So you have north of a thousand employees. There's a lot of career paths in there. That's not a that's not a 20-person RIA shop or a seven-person RIA shop where unless Mr. Jones retires, you have no upward mobility or whatever, right? This is a, this is a big company. There's plenty of career paths in there. 
And one of the other things that, you know, is talked about a lot, I don't know how much of a trend it is, but talked about a lot is changes in billing models, you know, relative to RAs. The you know, kind of the AUM fee has been there forever, you know, hovering right around one, 1%. There's talk about a lot of people pushing flat fee billing, hourly billing, subscription models, you know, things like that. What do you see from, from the data? Yeah, I think the reality is the numbers would say it's still almost all AUM billing today. The hot trends, though, are the other things. And so whether it be hourly or retainers, or I think the, the one that I think is going to stick is subscription fees, where you pay a, a fixed amount monthly or quarterly or annually. And I think you, know, you have this whole generation of investors that are growing up. I, I think of it as the Netflix model, right? I mean, I'm just used to Netflix charging my credit card every month. You know, whether it's 11.99 or 13.99, I guess they're raising the pricing. You know, the, the pricing power is what you have when you get there. It's a beautiful thing. But I think this monthly subscription fee for services is kind of a given. People understand that. You know, whether it's Netflix or whatever it is you're being charged for, and I think those are the models that will stick. So another anecdote: I'm on the board of another company called Facet Wealth. And they bill a subscription fee. So they never did have an AUM model. The Edel Edelman Financial Engines bills as a percent of AUM, traditional model. Facet bills as a flat fee. I, I don't think you're going to see the Edelman Financial Engines change models. They're not incented to go to a flat fee. But you're going to see a bunch of new generation of RIAs grow up billing that way. So whether it's Facet or XY Planning Network or Cheryl Garrett's firm, you know, you're, you're going to see these firms grow up doing that. And that's awesome. But that means the battleship turns very slowly, right? We'll be sitting here 10 years from today. It'll still be 90% AUM, right? It just doesn't change that quick when it's only the new people changing, right? You're not going to get, Merrill Lynch isn't going to reprice all their accounts next week. That's not happening. The subscription fee trend is the trend, but it's going to take a long time to get here. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's the you know young, also driven by the clientele. Like you said, the the younger generation is used to that subscription model. You know, they're going to you know grow up where you know AUM fees haven't been the norm for them from the time they started investing. And you know, they're I think they'll you know, they'll drive that trend. But it's a it is a long play. Yep, I, I would also add um, that those young people. Um, have different needs. And one of the things I think the industry is doing a good job of is actually recognizing that in realizing, for instance, they may have no AUM. Therefore, no one who bills on AUM is interested in them. But if you can bill them a monthly subscription fee or quarterly, whatever it is, subscription fee, and you can help them with their broader financial planning needs, you know, maybe that is, hey, what debt should I pay down? I don't have any AUM to give you, Mr. Advisor, but maybe teaching me that I should pay my credit card debt off first but as a higher interest rate as opposed to my student loan or whatever. I made that up. But, whatever, you know, but that's help or how I should title my, um, uh, my retirement plan, my beneficiary designation, things like that. There's a lot of uh, help you can give to people, helping them save on car insurance and life insurance. And, you know, um, none of that has anything to do with AUM, right? And so an advisor who bills on AUM, why would they take that client? Of course they wouldn't take that client. client has no AUM. But a client, but an advisor who builds on a subscription fee opens up the advice world to a whole new set of uh, uh, clients who need help. They really need help. This is high value help in my mind. So, so I like it. It's not, it's not just an age thing. It's also delivering a pricing model that works for what their needs are. Their needs are not managing their money. 
it really broadens what the advice is being given on. A bunch of great examples there. When I mean, when you're younger, the investments, that might not be as big a deal. Put them in low cost, diversified funds, set it and forget it. You're done. But like, should I buy a house or should I rent? You know, some basic fundamental questions that aren't really driven around investments are you know truly valuable. And then kind of growing with that relationship, I think, is, is definitely going to be a trend as you know people's financial needs change. So relative to technology, I mean, you made the comment a little bit earlier, like technology for an RIA is a pretty powerful thing. In the time I've been in the industry, I think you've seen a little bit of ebb and flow where originally it was like your old firm Schwab. If you're an RIA, you, you got Portfolio Center from Schwab or you, know, you got you know, whatever it was, Veo from you know, TD Ameritrade or something like that. Your technology was probably all in one provided to you from your custodian. And then you started getting all these point solutions coming out. You got a financial planning system and a rebalancing system and you know, all these different systems. And then what naturally happens is they don't talk together anymore. So it becomes kind of a pain in the neck. And now I think you're seeing a move back more to integrated and consolidated, not completely, still tons of point solutions, but they all talk together quite a lot. And different approaches with some of the major players, I think, into whether they want to provide an all-in-one solution or they just want to be a terrific place to integrate. I think that's right. I think what you've seen, and I use the same lingo, single point solutions, is we can now name 14 types of technology that advisors use. So, you know, CRM is a category or financial planning software is a category. We can name 14 categories of that. At the end of the day, the big three for most advisors, it'd be their CRM, their financial planning, and their managed account platform, however they're managing money, right? Those are the big three technologies. And those definitely need to be integrated. And so you're seeing firms like Orion and InvestNet and um, InvestCloud and Adapar and Vestmark. I'm probably forgetting six of them. But these firms are building complete tech stacks or whatever. And that's a really savvy offering for advisors. But it's it, it just this is how the world works, right? And once they roll up all those, like, I remember a few years ago, Fidelity bought eMoney, then InvestNet bought MoneyGuide Pro. Well, guess what happens? Then some people go innovate new financial planning technology. It's a, it's, this America country is a really cool thing. You know, it's, it's, as soon as those are gone, that incents some guy to go invent again or gal to go invent again. So I think it's a great thing. You know, it'll just keep happening. You know, and so the platforms will keep getting bigger and they'll continue to be single point solutions out there. But again, at the end of the day, the technology, I remember when I got in this industry, Technology for independent advisors was literally miserable. It was it was like scary, sketchy stuff that I'm not sure it worked, right? And you wanted to work at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley because they had a desktop software. It was a fancy thing is what it was, you know? And I think that's reversed itself now. I think there's better technology in the independent channel than there is in the in the employee channel. There's probably still a lot more to go relative to other industries, uh, not all industries, obviously, but but many, you know, it's not quite as technologically advanced. I mean, you don't have as much like AI and you know machine learning and things like that going on in financial services. But I think that's not far off. Technology is really going to help the advisor do their job relative to how you handle a customer and how you optimize portfolios, what kind of recommendations you make based on client data and in demographics and things like that. Yeah, I think we have the beginnings of that, though. I mean, you know, I mean, even telephone navigation systems, when you try to call your credit card company or your, 
your, you know, your brokerage room. That's the beginning of AI and ML working right there. You know, um, you know, can they identify your account? Can they figure out what you're calling about? Can they get you to run three words and get you in the right place quicker than they would without them being involved? Uh, so I think you're seeing the beginnings of that. And, and I think it'll, it'll keep coming. You know, I think it's a good thing. No doubt. So we can talk about our world a little bit at DPL. Being on the board, you're extremely familiar with, you know, with what we're looking to do and, and the mission. And the thesis I've had from the beginning was around, you know, insurance being an antiquated industry and not kind of keeping up with the, you know, advisory business model and the general trends of financial services, you know, where you're looking at products that don't operate on transactional fees anymore, don't pay commissions, are low cost, transparent. And this has been kind of uh, an industry that's been dying to be disrupted or innovated. What are some of the things you saw relative to an insurance, which has gotten you interested in helping us out at DPL? Yeah. So I guess when I think through financial services industries that can be innovated, um, you know, like I think, I think Schwab and Fidelity and others innovated the mutual fund space, uh, you know, and made third party funds super available to everyone. I think companies like InvestNet and others innovated in the separately managed account space. I think that was pretty cool. I, w- I would say even, I mean, you say insurance. I'd say PNC insurance has done a better job, property and casualty, than has life and health, right? So PNC, at least through our, you know, the AccuQuotes and all these lemonades and all these, you know, trying to, you know, help you buy competitively, you know, car insurance or homeowner insurance. So, so you're seeing some, some, some movement there, which is positive to see. In the wealth world, you're seeing, you know, supermarkets of structured products, supermarkets of alternative investments. You see opportunities to invest in, like, I, I love some of these companies, like Masterworks. You can invest in artwork or, you know, there's a wine one. There's a, uh, there's a whiskey one. You know, you can, these are alternative investments, you know. Uh, there's, there's kind of the new, new kinds of timeshares coming where you actually own the home as opposed to owning time in the home. And, you know, and your upscale houses and all that. So there's, there's so many industries that can be innovative. And again, on that list for me would be life insurance and annuities, just an industry that's been begging for innovation for decades, not not a year or two or three, but decades right now. And so, you know, in, in many ways, the industry, my, my humble opinion, and maybe some will be offended by this, but I think the industry grew up trying to complicate the product for consumers. You know, I'm going to make my annuity better than your annuity by adding this crazy writer, you know, and therefore you can't compare me to the next guy now. You know, I'm better, you know. And I think that's exactly what the industry, that's what consumers don't need. You know, it, you know, writers could someday just be a, a, a list of options, you know, is here's the chassis of the annuity, pick your writer if you want it, it costs X dollars more, right? I mean, that's how you innovate for consumers. So, so I'm pretty stoked about trying to innovate in the annuity and life space. It just seems like a, a huge opportunity right now. And the deeper you get into it sometimes, the more you realize there's there's work to be done on that on that innovation side. I do definitely believe. I mean, it's been an industry that designs products to be complicated, you know, designs them to be sold and not used. That's one of my things I say all the time. Bring products to market that can be used, not sold. In order to use them, you got to be able to understand them and you know simplify them. I'd be careful not to let the investment people off the hook too quickly because mutual funds 15, 20 years ago were the exact same garbage, right? It was, there's nine classes of shares and you use the R share and I use the L share. And, you know, does the customer ever get the right share? Probably not. And does he get the cheapest share? Of course not. You know, uh, and, and again, it was all the same crap, you know, 
until firms like Schwab that tried to innovate and said, we will only sell your least cheap, your cheapest share, right? No matter, you can have a thousand classes of your mutual fund if you want. The only one we will accept is the cheapest one, right? And that's when innovation starts, when that's when the garbage starts falling out, right? So I, I think that's an awesome thing. And I think that's where you're headed right now at DPL. Yeah, ex- exactly. And for advisors, you know, who often think of complication, you know, a lot of a lot of investment advisors, because they've never been able to bill on annuities, have dismissed them, you know, for a lot of reasons that either aren't true or convenient. But one of them is complication. Products are, you know, somewhat complicated sometimes. You know, some are completely simple, but so are mutual funds. I mean, that's something I point out all the time. Explain to me how your mutual fund return is derived. Right. I mean, that's an incredibly complicated formula. I, I can explain an annuity a lot more easily than I can explain the returns of a given active managed fund. Right. Completely agree. Completely agree. The other you know, area we focus on is you know, not only it's, it's the product pricing you know, and, and the, the product design and simplification, but it's also the distribution model. So the distribution model, to me, again, is designed in the 1950s at some point. It's still primarily sold over a desk, over a kitchen table, over face-to-face, one-on-one salesperson to consumer. And that's also something we try to innovate is bringing products to advisors who can use products products, you know, not sell them uh, and, you know, do it through technology and choice and comparison. So, you know, many people have likened what we're doing to the, you know, Schwab OneSource, which I know you were there at Schwab in the uh, throes of, of building that. Yep. I think that's exactly right. And I think, by the way, I think distribution is, uh, is two levels. It's, um, you know, it's the consumer distribution, but it's also the wholesalers to the advisors, right? And both of those add complexity and add cost to the products, right? And so, again, even in the mutual fund industry, it was the same thing, right? It was, you know, companies like American Funds and Franklin Templeton and Putnam and AIM and all these had hundreds of wholesalers running around calling on advisors in the Merrill Lynch office in New York or Chicago or wherever and taking them to lunch and giving them golf balls and all that. Well, guess who pays for all that crap, you know? The consumer pays for all that crap with the worst product at the end of the day, right? And so you don't really need all of that. At the end of the day, if someone could give you a, a fancy Excel sheet that just says, hey, here's all the mutual funds, you know, rank them by their return or by their expenses or by the color of their brochure. I don't care what you want to rank them by, but rank them however you want to rank them. And that's what Morningstar did, you know, came along and said, hey, we can simplify all this. And I mean, they simplified it to like star ratings and all that stuff. And simplification is a great thing and it helps consumers, right? You can always find fault with simplification, but it always helps consumers. It is it is always the consumer's friend. Yes. And in insurance, they've they've worked hard to go the other direction, even in, in the forms of you know applications, right? The the application, making the application difficult is one of the defenses, you know, for the insurance company to keep the assets at the company. Let's make it really hard to apply or, or move the money. And so that's something we also have our sights on and are working towards improving for the betterment of the consumer. Yeah. You know, another good example is mortgages. Like, do you remember when getting a mortgage was a miserable experience, you know? And along came Quicken Loans and a couple others like that that just said, hey, we don't need to meet you in person. We can give you an online app. There's only 50 questions that matter, and we're going to ask you and be done with it. Kind of thing. And Again, that's innovation. That's simplicity. That's what helps consumers. And we should be able to buy investments, buy insurance, buy, get a mortgage. You know, all these things should be doable. 
I may choose to have an advisor hold my hand and do it. You may choose to do it on your own. But at the end of the day, it should be basically the same technology. You know, it's just a matter of asking the right questions and going through the right process. It should not be complicated. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you see it you know, simplified in so many different ways you know, with technology throughout financial services. I mean, now you look at payment systems, which have been big in terms of loads of innovation. You can buy something from your phone and never really have to give your information. Just use Apple Pay and buy something online. It's got to get to someplace close to that for the annuity application to purchase any financial product. Totally agree. I just spent a couple of months in Spain and I, I, I literally don't think I used currency in two months. I literally did not use any currency for two months. Like they just take Apple Pay as a given. They, they don't understand why you wouldn't use Apple Pay. Similarly, by the way, remember when Square was such a super cool innovation where the lady helping her daughter sell Girl Scout cookies could take your credit card and that little square thing went on top of your phone. That's a super cool innovation, except now Apple is out innovating them. They're going to make that part of an iPhone, right? You don't need to have Square on your board. Now, now it's a core part of your technology. Again, this is innovation. This is where the world needs to go. What are some of the other you know, high-level trends that we haven't touched on yet? One that we talk about with advisors a lot is interest rates. Interest rates in this kind of low interest rate era that we've been in dictates a lot of issues for the client, the retiree in particular. What have you seen happening generally with declining interest rate environment we've been in in the last decade plus? We haven't had any interest rates. They've been uh, near zero for a long time right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, it favors the borrower uh, more so than the investor. The savvy strategy would be to take out a lot of debt and invest that money. Um, you know, I think that period is ending right now. So that's what we have behind us. I think in portfolios, a lot of what I saw was uh, higher allocations to equities because the bond portfolio was adding so little value. Um, I, you would also see uh, the bond portfolio being ultra short because if it wasn't going to earn any interest rates, why take any damn risk kind of thing? Yeah. So um, it might be uh, less bonds and shorter duration bonds. And I think that's where we've come from. And again, I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not here. I, I can't call the market. I have no idea. But like everyone else, I assume we're going to see interest rate increases now. And I think this is all going to start changing. We're going to go back the other direction. So uh, super interesting. That means pay off your mortgage now, you know, and you know, don't, don't get caught when you're uh, your mortgage resets in the next year or two up to a higher rate. I think you'll see bonds come back into portfolios and uh, has a big impact on annuities. Yes. Yeah. Annuities, you know, get priced based on, you know, generally 10 year, uh, you know, treasuries or, you know, bonds in, in that duration. Um, so yeah, when, when bond rates go up, annuity rates, you know, generally go up as well. Um, so that's, it's a good thing for our, you know, product pricing. And it's a good thing for retirees uh, because we, you know, we focus a lot on that. And that's one of the things you mentioned we see also, right? Advisors you know, who have clients in much heavier equity allocations than has been traditionally prudent. The retiree going into their golden years with a 70-30, 80-20 portfolio uh, because equities have been performing and, and you know, interest rates have been low. Part of the place that you know, our products play is helping de-risk that portfolio and bring, you know, some you know, needed income in which investments just can't do at this point. I think that's right. I agree with you. Yeah. So for advisors, you know, a big, a big part of our story is not only creating these products, bringing them to market, integrating into your technology so that just like, you know, just like other businesses, you know, we, we've talked about before, 
where used to be held away assets or, you know, you had to go through individual applications on maybe alternatives and things like that. You see businesses like ours who are kind of creating those two sided marketplaces integrating into your desktop to make them, you know, these kind of investments and insurance in our case accessible and integrated. And that to me has been, you know, part of the secret sauce that we really needed to solve for here. Yeah. And I think it'll continue to be the secret sauce and that I think at the end of the day, advisors are going to simplify their own businesses and simplifying their own businesses to get everything into the portfolio. Right. And so if I can run one portfolio accounting system and download my my clients a new well, I could have been held away mutual funds back in the day. Then it can be uh, held away annuities, held away life insurance, et cetera. But it should also be their mortgage should be dragged in. And if they want to invest in some wacky artwork fund or some wacky crypto fund, that should be pulled in. At the end of the day, you want to get all this into one portfolio accounting system. That's how you deliver great advice. And and you know, it, embedding to that technology is critical. Yeah. And, and everybody, like every advisor in every channel, I think, is starting to look more and more alike, you know, where they're starting to manage money on, you know, like we said, managed accounts. Now, even the insurance advisor is leading with financial planning, you know, just like so everybody's starting to lead with planning. They're going to manage your money based on a fee. You know, it's, it's really just where they're hanging their hat. That is that is you know kind of the difference. And, and I would actually argue that's OK, too, because I think at the end of the day, we actually are migrating to the right customer-centric offer, right? And, you know, that is a, a portfolio approach to managing the client's money. You know, probably, you know, pricing based on AUM, but it could be subscription fees or something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, trying to get your hands around all the client's money, whether you actually manage it yourself or whether you're just importing and putting on the statement so that you're correctly asset allocating. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how many... Uh, advisors for decades here have done asset allocation only of the portion of the money of the client they have. That's literally useless, David. That's useless, you know, because if you don't know what the other money's in, it could be in equities or it could be in, you know, currency. You know, and then, and how the hell do you know what your asset allocation should be? It's just like a literally a made up number. Oh, but I'm right on my asset allocation, but it's irrelevant is the only problem, you know? And so I, I'd love to see the portfolio approach to, you don't have to give me all your money, Mr. Client, but I need to be able to see all your money. I need to be able to put it on a statement together and decide the portion I'm managing needs to be managed in this way because of everything you hold. That's the right consumer outcome in every case. And as, as firms all do that, I think it's great. And therefore, what you said, um, at the end of the day, if I choose to be an employee at a wirehouse like Merrill Lynch and you choose to be an independent advisor because you're more entrepreneurial than I, that's fine. That's fine for both of us. There's nothing wrong with us choosing to work differently, choosing to deliver a different value to the clients a little less clear to me because I think there is a perfect value. The perfect value is the portfolio approach. That's part of the value proposition we talk to you know, RIA firms about DPL because every advisor is starting to look like you. It used to be when I first got in this industry, it was you know the RAs were the fiduciaries and they were the ones managing money on fees. And now basically everybody's kind of claiming that in one form or another. You know, I'm managing money on fees. I'm acting in your best interest. That may be technical differences between that and being a fiduciary. But to the consumer, it all sounds the same. And if you're an RIA and you're saying, this is what I do, but I don't do insurance, you've got a negative differentiation. 
you know, to, to your firm and, and everybody else is trying to do what you do and sound like you sound. I think it actually both are true. I think to some great degree, they do do the same thing, you know, to a great degree, right? And then on the marketing, of course, they say they do the same thing. Of course, they say that, right? So in a, in a customer's or a prospect's eyes, like if you're a prospect looking for a new advisor and maybe you're getting referrals from your friends or maybe you're on NerdWallet and you have them send you three advisors or however you find your the three or four advisors you're going to shop from, I got to believe they all sound exactly the same to the uh, to the consumer, right? And they're probably within reason pretty darn similar. So it's time to you know differentiate oneself. And your point about you don't want to have a negative differentiator that's ridiculous. You know you want to have a bunch of positive differentiators. This has been really great conversation, Chip. Appreciate you joining me this afternoon. Again, so happy you joined the board and, and, and appreciate all your your help with the business. And you know look forward to years to come as we continue to innovate this this market that's dying for it. I agree. I'm glad to be on the DPL board, and I think we are going to hugely innovate in insurance and annuities for the betterment of consumers. So I think it's a good thing. So proud of you. Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. Let's go. Thanks for listening. You can find this podcast on your favorite app or listen at dplfp.com.